Hello, and welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek, The Next Generation. And we think that one way to do that is to recap and discuss the entire series one episode at a time, doing our best to look at it all through an anti-oppression, pro-diversity, anti-racist lens. I'm Ruthie Kauper-Samoshi. And I'm Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about Pen Pals. This episode was written by Melinda M. Snodgrass and Hannah Louise Shearer, and directed by Winwich Colby. It first aired on April 29th, 1989. For today's check-in, let's talk about the Prime Directive a little bit. Is it annoying? Is it good? Does it just tie our hands? Does it stop us from doing good? Is it unnecessarily restrictive? What do you think? So many questions. (laughs) that I was hoping you would answer today, Matthew. <laughs> oh, I see. No, no, oh, I see. No. I mean, I'd be happy to talk about it as well, but yeah. I, you know, I figured we both chat. We'll both chat. Yeah. I think the Prime Directive is something that I 100% understand, but I can't wrap my head around whether I agree with it or not. I think its existence is just very important in terms of the audience that would be watching this show. Primarily because I think... Probably not anymore, but at this time, I think it's fair to say that the Federation really is a stand-in for America. Sure. Because if you think about it, it's such an anti-philosophy or an antithesis to manifest destiny. Right. We have the right to go and just do whatever, because whatever we do is always going to be righteous. Yes. So at least there is this check on power. In that way, I would say, I don't know if it's fair to say that it's it's an anti-colonial ideology in that sense, because... We still have still a lot of vestiges of colonial type influence and decision making happening in the Federation. But <laughs> I think in this sense, it's at least we're asking this question, should we even be involved at all? I think that is an important thing to ask. At least we're questioning how do we deploy or use power? Right. The Prime Directive is helpful in the stories that Star Trek tells because it forces us to question what sort of interference is actually helpful and what sort of interference is just the way I do things is the right way. So I'm going to make mm-hmm. sure everyone else does things my way. So I think it's it's helpful as a storytelling piece. Totally. And I think for, for real life where something like this is helpful is that it helps people to acknowledge where they have power at all. Yes. Because I think often where we see power imbalance, especially around like on an individual level around things like consent or on national level of analysis on things like colonialistic expansion and imperialism, we'll say like, are we even acknowledging that we have a power imbalance or that there is a power dynamic that exists between me and another person or me and another country or me and another, I don't know, company or something? And often we don't want to do that. I I wonder if some ways the prime directive is like an acknowledgement of privilege. So then where do we see problems with the prime directive? When, When does it not work? When is it not the right thing? I mean, obviously in this episode, we'll get into that. But what's what's the downside? Yeah, I think that like where I would question it more is when we have an incident where, well, it's kind of like this. We're like, because it's the natural course of development or evolution in, say, I give an example for an entire species to be wiped out or for a planet to like explode. If we can go in and intervene, should we or shouldn't we? 
And what what does that mean for us? And those are places I think I would struggle a lot more. You know, and he brings up, there's several examples that are brought up in that sort of roundtable conversation that they have in the captain's quarters Mm -hmm. where they say, oh, we definitely should intervene in this situation. And then he's like, but what about in a war? Do we really want the Federation to be, say, dragged into a civil conflict? Do we really want to? And it it does get messy. And, and I'm glad that they bring up those other scenarios because it's not as if sometimes you can go in, do one thing, and then leave. It might mean that you become entrenched because the problems are not necessarily easily resolved. We want them to be. We want to think that power can do that. And certainly in the technology that we see in the Federation, that is sometimes the case where they can do one thing. And because they're so advanced, it solves all the problems. And so the contact with whatever society is limited and the, the contamination, therefore, of their culture or their religion and their beliefs and such. But that, that might not always be true. And so at what point do you, do you make that decision? And I think then that's where Picard says, and that's one line that really stood out to me in this episode, it's also designed to protect us. Yes. It allows us to say, okay, no, this we've decided that this is not a direction we want to go in because we'll always feel, assuming that these are the intentions are always in good faith, that we'll always feel the need to go in and want to help. But where does that take us to then? Yes. And that was where I wanted to kind of draw attention to as well, this idea that it exists to protect us. I think that in this episode, the easy decision would have been to say we can't get involved because the prime directive says so. Right. I mean, it's it, in some ways it reminds me of this happens sometimes with kids that like a kid sort of like screws up or does something that they know they shouldn't have done. And they're just like, I'm sorry for whatever I did wrong. And my sort of response to that is often like saying sorry isn't a big deal. What I want to know is do you actually understand what you did wrong and why it was a problem and how to avoid doing that again, not just saying sorry. And and there's sort of a piece here with with that, like just saying the prime directive says we can't do this puts you in a position where you don't actually have to think about your impact on the rest of the galaxy. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Are you trying to make the argument that then that's like that's like a like a cop out? Well, I think it can be a good thing and I think it can be a bad thing. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, I think that <laughs> I think the reason in this episode that they ended up making the decisions that they did is that in this situation maybe it would have been a cop out. Right. But I also think that like you said People have a tendency to interfere and they don't always have the full picture when they're interfering and that can make things worse. And, you know, the Federation's ways of doing things are not necessarily going to be better than the ways of some world that doesn't yet have interstellar travel. And it would not be okay for them to just impose their values because from their vantage point, their way of doing things would be better than the way that, you know, that society is doing things. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's often made as as an argument as to why we've interviewed with other societies. Yeah. So like I said, like I think that I 100% understand why the prime directive needs to be there. And with that, I can also have space for maybe sometimes the prime directive needs to be broken. 
Honestly, it served as a really powerful tool for me when I was in university and studying international development. I, I thought about the prime directive a lot sure. in a lot of our courses in terms of what happens in contact between nations. And yeah, like we're, we're still talking all about humans <laughs> in this version. Right. However, if we know that in Star Trek, the whole idea that we're coming in contact with like different sort of People is sort of a stand-in for diversity at our own planet, although that's problematic in some ways. We won't go down that path right now. <laughs> but we do have to think about how power plays out in in a in like an international development standpoint and the problems that it has caused with us going into other nations, either with military force or otherwise, even in in sort of a um, in a benevolent tone, the problems that that still causes down the road. Yes. And also the the rationale that we have as to why we go and intervene in some countries and why we don't in others. Right. Uh, which when you dig at sometimes is not exactly in good faith either. Right. Like there's oil here. Yes. That's why That's we went why out we to intervene. help these people. Yeah. yeah. I also think that it would be irresponsible for a television show like Star Trek, which is a work of fiction that will be consumed by many people in North America, like the show was created in North America and it was broadcast all over the world, but it was a U.S. show and and the U.S. certainly has a, a history of interference. I think that it would have been irresponsible for a show like Star Trek to not have a prime directive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's cool that they thought of that at all. Yeah. Yeah. General, uh, I think back in the original series, it was called General Order 1. In uh, in Strange New Worlds, it's called General Order One in the first episode, but they change it to the Prime Directive, and Pike's like, it'll never stick. <laughs> it'll never stick. Yeah, that'll never stick. Yeah. It is complicated, and I mean, I'm sure it's not surprising that the episodes where it is most apparent are the episodes where they come closest to breaking it, or do outright break the prime directive. Yeah, or, you know, bend it or whatever. Yeah. I find these episodes really interesting because it's all the different ways it tests the effectiveness of the prime directive and the resolve of the crew to follow it and, and the ethical concerns that it raises. And this episode does a fairly good job. There are some places where I felt like they had to make characters say and do things that I didn't think they would normally say or do mm -hmm. in order to flesh out the conversation that they wanted to have. Okay. And so... I get that the writers were like, hey, let's have a Prime Directive episode. But in doing so, they needed to kind of twist some of the characters and dialogue to make the plot work. But we can get into that. Yeah. Well, well, let's get into it. Let's get into the episode. All right. Let's do it. What happens in this episode, Matthew? Well, in this episode, Data breaks the Prime Directive <laughs> by conversing with an alien child whose planet is in trouble. Meanwhile, Wesley commands his first team. Yes. Another classic A plot, B plot episode. Like, I know which one's intended to be the A plot and which is intended to be the B plot, but they both take up almost as much time. Yeah, they're both pretty prominent. In this episode. <laughs> they're both pretty prominent in this one, which is fine. Yeah. Sometimes I lose where the B plot parts go to which episode. Yeah, me too. And so I, I remember that at one point Wesley got command of a team, but I couldn't remember which episode it was in. I thought to myself, it's probably in one of these episodes that I pass over because I never see it. Yeah. And it was this one. Yeah. It's one of these episodes that, again, I pass over often in the second season, but ended up being better than I remembered it being, which seems to be a theme now when I've, I've revisited these episodes with you. Yes, yeah, season two has some good ones. I thought the last one, Icarus Factor, was good. This one I like. Next episode. Buckle up. Oh my goodness, up. yeah. Buckle up. Yeah, it also has some rough ones, which we will also get to fairly soon. Yes. So we start with the Enterprise being the first vessel 
with people on it to enter the Selkundi Drama sector. They have sent some probes, which have shown that there is some unusual geological activity on all of the planets in this system. But these are the first, the Enterprise are the first people who are checking it out. And as they approach, Data says that within the last 150 years, the fifth planet in this system shattered and formed an asteroid belt. That's intense. Yeah. Worf wonders if it could have been an unknown intelligence because he's Worf. Yeah. (laughs) So if a planet blows up, he's like, it must be an enemy. Uh, But Riker assures them that, no, this seems to be a geological feature of these planets, that they live fast and die hard. So these planets blow up on their own. And we've seen like the deterioration of these worlds just even after like a century, which in a planet time is like nothing. Yeah. But we want to figure out why. And we don't know why. So these planets are are breaking up. So here's that's the main premise of our our episode. And now we're going to go to the corridor for a... I don't know, a little, the metaphor part of our episode. A lot of this episode, it takes place in corridors. Yes. I noticed. Yes. There's like more corridor time in this episode than like any other episode, which is cool. I like walking around the it Enterprise. Is. It's cool. Yeah. Uh, Matthew, I have a question for you. Okay. What is it with captains of ships called Enterprise and horses? Yeah, I don't, I don't know where that comes from. I think, okay, I my memory on this might be shoddy. Okay. But with Picard, they... They introduced the horse concept with his character during the series. Yes. But if I recall, Captain Kirk, who also has an affinity for horses, they didn't introduce that until like the movies. I don't think they ever talked about that during the TV series, did they? I don't actually know. But I do know that in the first episode of Strange New Worlds... Captain Pike is oh, riding right. a horse in also the like, a horse. winter wilderness. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know why. Yeah. Is this just like a manly thing that we want our captains <laughs> to do? I don't know. <laughs> Interestingly, I think William Shatner actually rode horses, but Patrick Stewart didn't. That's true. So he he wasn't as comfortable with horses. I think he had like a stunt double for this one and Yeah. Yeah, William Shatner has a history with horseback riding, and he used to do like a charity that was based on that either used horse. It's called charity ride. Like, would fundraise using horse riding, or I'm not sure exactly what. Yeah. It, I have to go back and check that out. But there's, yeah, this is a thing. Maybe, maybe we're trying to give the impression that underneath all of our captains are cowboys. <laughs> yeah, well, they have an interesting discussion about why he likes horses. Picard says that there is a bond which is created by. Mutual need. But Troy has a very different feeling about animals. And she says that actually Betazoids become too involved with the the thoughts and the shifting passions. So, and they get too swept up in a way that I guess doesn't happen with humans or sorry, with people. And that they're, maybe they're able to control that more with people than they are with non-person animals. Yeah. And then Picard says, I'm surprised you don't get swept up in the passions of this animal. Which I think he's referring to himself. Yeah, I I thought he was talking about like people more generally. In general, yeah, maybe. It is interesting, like he talks about how some creatures can fill spaces that you never knew were empty, which is certainly my Mm -hmm. experience with my cat. Like I didn't know how, I I did not grow up with pets, so I I didn't have that experience as a child. But once I had my cat... I was like, oh, this is like we are very connected and yeah. I didn't know that that would happen. Yeah, I'm I'm cat sitting right now. Oh. Actually. So I'm at, I'm at a friend's <laughs> house where I'm recording this episode and uh, I'm cat sitting 
for him. A mutual friend of ours. Yes. Uh, that we know from university. Friend of the pod. A friend of the pod. I don't know if he actually listens to the pod. I should tell him to. <laughs> but friend of the podcasters, at least anyway. Yes. But yeah, it's it's um I love I love little creatures. And so yeah. uh, we Ari, the cat and I have been bonding. Very nice. And so I've appreciated that time. But I think he's very right that they they do fill this space in our hearts. They do. But just as Picard is about to climb on that horse, long range sensors are showing that this planet is clearly covered with lava and magma. And Riker calls Picard and is like, you're probably going to want to check this out. And Picard's kind of like this eye-rolling moment yeah. where he's like, ah, oh, literally just about to get on this thing. And so this planet used to have a thriving ecosystem, and now there is nothing. Yeah. So something is going on with these planets. And that takes us into the intro. We actually have an intro have on this episode, intro. which is great. We've had them on a lot of episodes recently. Yeah, where they actually introduce what's going on before the, yeah. the intro sequence, yeah. They're on the observation lounge, and Riker wants the senior staff, so this Troy, Pulaski, and LaForge uh, advice and recommendations on whether he should give Wesley command of a team doing a planetary mineral survey, and this is part of his education. And I found that this conversation got pretty intense for just, like, giving Wesley an assignment. They're, like, really invested in his personal growth and development. It is. I mean, it's interesting. So Riker has signed up to be in charge of Wesley's education while he's on the Enterprise because he is, Mm -hmm. he's not an actual ensign. He's, like, he's an acting ensign. He's got this sort of field assignment, but he hasn't been to the academy. He really should be in school. Riker is sort of taking, he has taken that on. I feel like in their conversation, they get really like high level and they don't really address the practical question of whether this is a good idea right now. They sort of talk about how eventually he will have to understand command, but they don't actually talk about why now it's important for him to command his own team. Yeah, they also get into the whether or not this is helping him in his command or helping him in his growth into adulthood. Right. And they, they kind of fall on that it's a little bit of both, but that how Troy says at one point you can't actually guide someone into adulthood because everyone's experiences in that process are unique. So we can only sort of give skills and experience that might help in a sense. Right. But I, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I kind of I get what you're saying that they do sort of get really intense about this. Uh, yeah. and, and it's like okay that's that's true what troy is saying but like how does that connect to this particular situation i guess it would also depend on what the what the consequences of failure are and in this case it's not like he's leading an away team down to the surface where they're in mortal danger right so i i think in this case it was there it just it seemed like a little bit more intense a conversation that was needed but i enjoy this stuff because when we had Wesley on the ship, we would have these sort of conversations around like growth and human development. Yeah. And I think mainly on afterwards, that centers primarily around data. But when we have Wesley around, we get to have these kinds of talks and that's cool. Yeah. And I think that in this scene, I don't agree with a lot of what Riker says because Riker is very much focusing like what he what he comes down on is sooner or later, he'll have to feel the burden of command. And I don't think the argument that a kid is going to have to face something at some point in their life. I don't think that's a good reason to make them face it now. But later in the episode, and we'll get to it, I do like how Riker guides and mentors Wesley. And I think actually, I was, I was thinking about Riker in this episode, and I think sometimes we see the the best Riker 
when he's with Wesley. What I like about that, the, the added layer underneath that I've come to better appreciate in posts that Will Wheaton has made about his time on Star mm-hmm. Trek is that Jonathan Frakes actually very much was a father figure yeah. to Will Wheaton yeah. on set. So it's knowing that adds another like kind of warm, fuzzy layer to, really the, to these does. conversations and moments between the two of them. Yeah, They call Wesley into the observation lounge. He enters and he's like, he looks really nervous because everyone's just staring at him. But then he smiles when Riker says that he's going to be in charge of the planetary mineral surveys. And he says, you're going to have to assemble a team and look at all the records Riker calls this a quadrant, but I think he means a sector, not a quadrant, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we use these more interchangeably until Voyager shows up. Right. And then we and, what, and, or even Deep in, Space or, Nine. Or Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine, when we have to like identify different parts of the entire galaxy. But Picard says this is a serious responsibility and the people here are here to assist you and support you, not to judge you. So Picard is... Being really clear here, I think that he's like, yes, you have command, but that doesn't mean you're not going to need help. And I actually respect and appreciate an officer who can admit that they don't know something and that and who will ask for help when they need it. Yeah, and that it's not a test. You know, I think that point on judgment is what he's trying to say. It's like to to clarify this is not an evaluation. We're, We're trying to help you grow. Yeah, this is a learning opportunity, not, yeah, not a test of whether you're good enough to lead a team. Yes. So yeah. now we go back to the bridge and Data is sitting at the science station and he's got all this stuff on the floor, which I thought was also <laughs> unusual for Data because he's I think making he's a real pretty, mess. He's making a real mess. He's usually pretty organized, but yeah. he's doing these enhancements to the sensors and he's helping them to to scan outside of their normal range. But all the things that he mentions that the sensors would be able to scan. They definitely already scanned for it. So I'm like, I didn't really, I think this is just, <laughs> we have to be able to detect something that we didn't detect earlier in the story. Yeah. And so that, that's why we're doing this part. But he tells Worf that it's a personal project. Yeah. And and Worf asks if this project would help the scanners pick up artificial transmissions in addition to various natural phenomena and he says yes it would and Worf is like good which I wonder like is that because Worf still thinks that something evil is <laughs> lurking out there eating yeah. planets yeah, yeah possibly I hadn't thought of that but that's probably true yeah so then Worf trips over his equipment yeah he's not happy about that yeah yeah Data actually in this scene it was that, that like that's how I work I just like get a collection of mess around me when I'm when I'm working on something yeah he's got all these isolinear chips and like <laughs> control board console pieces on the floor and so Data's like I will be moving that equipment back to my quarters and Worf's like good and then just kind of goes back to his station <laughs> yeah. this is a grumpy Worf episode yeah I like grumpy Worf grumpy yeah, Worf's okay Back in the corridor, Troy and Riker are walking and talking and kind of like giggling. I guess they're yeah. chatting about stuff. And Wesley approaches them and asks for advice. And you you even know here that this is a weird beginning. It is because he's like, can I walk with you? And they're like, yes. And he's like, I need some advice. And Riker's like, well, it's free. And Wesley's like, walking <laughs> or advice? And Riker's like, both. Like, it's both. just this. It's a very funny back and forth where like, <laughs> I, I don't really know what the intention was there. But... Basically, Wesley has picked his team members and Troy is like, okay, but you're worried because they're all older than you are. And he's like, yeah, how do I how do I command with that? How do I settle personality conflicts? Yeah, it's probably intimidating. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Riker says that Wesley's in charge. It doesn't matter about the personality conflicts. You're the one in charge. You're the authority. So just go and settle them and get the work done. 
yeah, you yeah. settle it. And there's a little point where Wesley's like, so I also have to be like a ship's counselor? And Troy's like, yep. <laughs> yeah, that's what command is like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he walks into this lab. This is like another one of these cool things because I will also say that in early Star Trek uh, TNG, at least in the first two seasons, we, we tend to see more episodes or parts of the ship we still haven't seen yet. This is probably rooms that are redecorated in the sets, but right. all of a sudden we have the different room, different angle to the corridor. Like it's still making the ship look big. And I think that's cool. Yeah, like we're, yeah, we're like seeing that. these other areas of the ship and makes yeah. it feel lived in and stuff. And so we find Ensign Davies, who's doing experiments on this rock. And so he's vaporizing a rock in this little tube and then I guess analyzing what's coming out of the rock. Wesley asks Ensign Davies to be on the team and Davies asks who else is on the team and then expresses some disappointment that part of the team includes a married couple, which is a really weird. He's like, well, I would have broken them up if I had worked on the team because I find that's a better thing. And it's just like a strange thing to say right off the get go when you've been selected as a team member. I get the impression from Davies that he thinks part of his role is to mentor Wesley. Like Wesley is in command, but that Davies is mentoring Wesley, commanding him, which is not usually a good dynamic to have because it means that the person who's in command, like you can't you can't have command if you are also like answering to one of the people you have command over. That that makes the authority really complicated. Yeah, and he says like, oh yeah, well, if you need any help dealing with them, you know, like let me know. And it, it just, it's, the way that it's written and the way the character and the actor like pulls these lines off, it's it's really well done in order to just kind of subvert Wesley's authority and to make him seem insincere in his help. Like he doesn't maybe really yeah. trust Wesley's abilities. And you can see that like Wesley looks shaken by it right away. Like right away, someone's already pushing against my authority and seems to be questioning my judgment. Wesley is very young. Like he is a teenager. Yeah. There, that also makes it really hard. And I can understand, like, I don't agree with this, <laughs> kind of like the Prime Directive, but like, like I don't, I don't agree, but I can understand why Davies behaves the way he does. Like, it makes sense. That is a reaction that a lot of people would have when they have a, a much younger person put in charge of, of them who they're reporting to, that he, he's not taking Wesley seriously. And I think a lot of adults are like yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're back in Data's quarters, and Data is finding low-level RF waves in a pattern that is not naturally occurring. And we kind of hinted at this earlier when he was talking with Worf that yeah. we might be picking up new artificial signals. Data has to, like, kind of cut through the noise. It reminded me of looking at waveforms when we edit the podcast. It is, although <laughs> what's funny to me is that the computer's like, mm, the signal's weak, and Data's like, okay, boost it. Like... <laughs> Yeah, enhance, it's, enhance. It's not it's that like, easy. Like, oh, the signal's fuzzy. Okay, enhance it. Like, enhance oh, it, only, yeah. If only it were that easy. It's like when they blow up photos on like CSI and stuff and they're like, yeah. enhance, enhance, enhance. 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 <laughs> like it blow sharp, it up yeah. over, make it sharper. So you can see the waveform change. And then he asks for the universal translator to key into the signal. And the computer's like, well, the signal's too weak to do that. I don't know if at some point it finally does click in because when the voice comes through, it's in English. It's like, is anybody out there? It is. Yeah, no, like, that's, yeah. he has to boost it. He, the computer's like, the signal's too weak. He's like, that's okay, why. so then okay. boost it. <laughs> boost it. Apparently the UT's working or they're speaking English, but he hears this young voice come through and it asks, is anybody out there? And Data responds immediately without thinking. He's like, yes. Yeah, and I think this is the only point at which Data could have followed the Prime Directive. He could have followed it here and not answered. But once he answered, I think they were sort of locked in 
to the the course of action that they took. Maybe similarly, but I what I thought of was this was the most realistic point in the storyline where Data could have broken the Prime Directive. Yeah. But as we find out later, this is not a singular moment that he's like, wow, I made contact. Uh, I should probably report this. But he doesn't. And that's, but we'll get to that later. I do sort of want to get into this maybe now, if that's okay. Yeah. So this episode was written by uh, Melinda M. Snodgrass, who also Mm -hmm. wrote Measure of a Man. Yes. I found, this is just on like memory alpha, so take it as... As you see fit. Okay. This episode was assigned to Melinda M. Snodgrass. The premise was basically that they they have to, the crew has to break the prime directive because someone has made contact with a child whose planet is falling apart. Right. But it was Snodgrass's idea to have the initial crew member who makes contact be Data. So let me just read what it says here. This is directly from Memory Alpha. It says, The teleplay was then assigned to Melinda Snodgrass. During story meetings, the writers considered various characters who could interact with the child. Snodgrass succeeded in convincing the other staffers that Data was the best fit for the tale. She later explained, You can picture Data becoming entranced in answering the question, Is there anyone out there? First, he's an android, and if you ask him a question, you're going to get an answer. Secondly, the whole thing is so charmingly intriguing to him that he would do it. You never could picture any of the other characters doing that, but Data can make the mistake, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, and step out of his careful Starfleet training because he's really just growing up. He's more of a child than Wesley. So I just wanted to bring that up and sort of get your thoughts on it. And maybe say some of my own thoughts. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. That's why I thought like the original, like the initial contact that they make makes sense. But what we find out later is that Data continues to be in contact with this individual on the planet for weeks before giving, like reporting it to Captain Picard. And that's the part that I totally was like, no way. There's no way that would happen. And so, and, and it's also like, it's an element of it that also didn't need to be there. Like, he could have even had just one conversation with her. And it still raises the question around the Prime Directive. Yeah. I think that's to give the impression that they have formed this relationship over time. As we'll see later on, her role in the in the episode is already still so short by the end when they finally bring her on board the ship that it didn't... It was like a plot element that just didn't make sense and seem need to be there. That's the part that I didn't get. I'm like, there's no way that I would buy the data would maintain like a secret contact relationship with this with this being on another world and not tell anyone about it for two months or three months this the six to eight weeks thing was a lot for me to take there there were other things also on like imdb and memory alpha where certain writers and and i think the director as well all thought that they should have done more with the relationship between mm-hmm. data and this being and i don't know that that necessarily like, I think, like you said, the question of the prime directive, you don't, they don't need to have that relationship for it to come up. When you hear a kid saying, like, please help me, you don't have to have a relationship to that kid to think, like, oh, I better help this kid. One of the struggles of fitting so much story in, like, a 45-minute episode that needs to be its own condensed, yeah. like, beginning and end is that you you probably get stuck between wanting to have, like, a personal story growth thing for Data also Wesley, and then also have this prime directive conversation all in one episode. Like, 
maybe we didn't need Wesley's side story in this one. And we could have just fleshed out the, the relationship between Data and, and Serjenka as we come to know that her name is. And Maybe. Although I think that it could have been done without having it be six weeks and just have it be like Data has had this conversation and now we're involved. Because one thing that I actually found really interesting is that there are ways in which Wesley's struggles with command are then sort of mirrored with these much bigger struggles that Picard has with command. Oh, okay. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. I do think, though, aside from the, like, the six weeks piece, I do think that Data is very well written in this episode. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that having a parallel between him and a child in this episode makes a lot of sense. And it, yeah. Because he does have a childlike quality about him. He does. Yeah. Okay, so now let's go back to the corridor where Wesley is pacing outside of his lab. More corridor time. <laughs> Yeah, so he's sort of walking back and forth. He's very determinedly not entering the lab where his teen is. Yeah. And Pulaski walks by and she notices him and sees that something is up. So she goes up to him and she says, what's wrong? And he's nervous and, and Pulaski says, uh, you have nothing to prove. You already have been given the authority. So it's up to you to hang on to it. And then I think you're going to do just fine. So it's nice yeah. to get a pep talk from Pulaski. That's cool. Yeah, she's very affirming in this episode. Mm-hmm. We go forward in time. This is yeah, the six. This is a six-week gap. Yeah, six week. So. I I have noticed also that episodes take a lot longer than I always think they do. Like when I heard that in the captain's log that it had been six weeks, I didn't feel that six weeks had passed. You know, no. like this could have been like a two-day episode, and it wouldn't have felt any different. Yeah, so this is why I didn't understand why the time. And so I think that's supposed to be to show that Data has formed this relationship yes. with this person, but it, whether or not that was necessary. It, yeah. yeah. I don't Anyways, know. so the log tells us they've been there for this long and that all the system, all the planets in the system have the same geological upheavals. Wesley's team is reporting the results to him and he wants Davies to run a specific uh, test, the Ico spectrogram, based on some of the readings. But Davies says that the readings are very faint. The point is, is that they might be indicative of the presence of dilithium on the planet. Right. But Davies is like, no, no, it's it's a fool's echo, he calls it. It's probably just like wasting time. And Hildebrandt, one of the others, tries to also convince Wesley that it's not worth, like, putting in the time. And so Wesley kind of capitulates and he's like, you know, like, I I want to be thorough. And he's like, I don't want to do a half job. Yeah. But Davy says, well, there's there's being thorough and then there's just wasting time. And it's also the mark of a good officer to know the difference. So in other words, you're not a good officer unless you just listen to what I want to do. Yeah. Wesley's like, okay. And he kind of looks defeated and just leaves. Yeah. And I think this is, a, like... Definitely an instance of Davies thinking that his job is to mentor. Like, I think that actually what Riker has done with giving Wesley real responsibility, but also the safety of, as we'll see later, Wesley can talk to Riker and and the other officers and ask for help. I think that that's actually a very effective way of teaching responsibility because you can't learn responsibility if you don't have it. What Davies is doing is basically taking all of that responsibility away from Wesley. That he's saying, you don't have to make any decisions because I'll tell you what the right ones yeah, are. Yeah, and, and then therefore who's actually in command. Yes. We're back on the bridge at the science station and Data asks the computer for information about Drama 4. So that's a planet we're interested in right now. And then based on what he sees, because he's you can tell by his eyes, he's like reading really fast. Yeah. He decides to leave and talk to Picard. He asks where Picard is. And the computer says that he's on the holodeck, so we know that he's probably riding horses. <laughs> Data gets up very dramatically and, like, leaves the bridge. Data tells Picard basically everything that's been happening, that he has 
he got this question. He found this transmission. Is anybody out there? And he answered it. Picard is like, okay, but I'm guessing it didn't end there. And Data says that, no, it didn't. And he often speaks to this this kid, this young female humanoid. Picard says, okay, so I'm guessing her society is aware of interstellar life. And Data says, nope, they are not. And Picard <laughs> says, oops. Oops, yeah. <laughs> but what I appreciated about this is that like, while he's on the horse and he's listening to what, like, he's off the horse by this point, but originally yeah. when Data brings the information forward, He's like slowly dismounts and he's being thoughtful, but he doesn't immediately be like, Data, what what did you do? Like he doesn't flip out. He doesn't lose his cool. He's, you know, slowly trying to work through why Data made the choices that he did and try to provide that space for growth. Yes. The upshot is that Data's worried because like all of the planets in this sector, Sarjenka's planet is also experiencing these geological disturbances. She's in danger. He sort of hoped Picard would be able to help him come up with some course of action that wouldn't necessarily violate the Prime Directive. Even though they kind of already have. Yes. Yes. <laughs> They're, they've, I mean, Data has contacted this, like someone from a society that does not have knowledge of interstellar travel. Uh, they haven't, I suppose one could argue they haven't yet interfered, but... Yeah. That's basically the only thing. Either they do nothing or they interfere. So Data's like, maybe there's a third option. Yeah, and Sarjenka, uh, the the person that we learned is their name, she yeah. doesn't know where Data is or what Data is at this point because Picard has been like, well, have you told her where you're even transmitting from? And Data says that he kept that like intentionally vague. Yes. And this is, I think, where you can tell, like, even though Data has perhaps some childlike qualities, he's not a child. Whereas Sarjenka has been very specific. She's just like chatting, just these are my brothers and these are my parents and this is my planet and there are volcanoes everywhere and earthquakes. And like she's she's just told him she's been she's told him everything that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. This is my life. Picard tells Jada to call a conference in Picard's quarters. I wondered if that was because like off the record a bit. Yeah. Like it's make it a little less formal and maybe we don't have to keep a log of this depending on where we end up like we this. This isn't a, a true briefing. This is a private discussion. Yeah, I think you're, I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, especially considering they make some like intentional, this is not on the record comments afterward. That yes. I think that's exactly what's going on. Picard also says to Data, you need to stop all communication with this life. And he complies. Data's like, okay. Yeah. But before that, we go to 10 forward. Riker's on a date. This is one of the cutest scenes, I think, in the whole series. Yes. Riker goes to get another drink. Wesley enters and just like points to the side and Riker brings his drink back to his date, says family emergency and goes to talk to Wesley. Yeah, I was watching it and at at first I was like, wait, did he say that this was a family situation? Like a family emergency? So I went back and I watched the closed captions and I'm like, that is is very nice. That is very nice. I love it. I cannot, like... I know some people who don't really like Riker. And oh, really? I think oh. it has to do with his interactions with women. Not that he's like inappropriate necessarily, but that he's, I don't know. I think it just annoys some people. And I i can get that. But these are the moments where I'm like, I love Riker so much. He's like, my kid is in trouble. I got to deal with it. I have to go take care of him. We're going to help. 
And he's really helpful. Wesley explains what happened with Davies and the Ico spectrogram. Riker's first question, I think it's actually a good one. Riker says, do you think you were right? Like, do you think your call to do that Ico spectrogram was actually the right decision? And Wesley's kind of like second guessing himself now. He's like, I don't know. I think I was, but maybe I was just picking nits. And Riker's like, or maybe you were right, but now you're feeling intimidated and that's what's causing you to doubt yourself. So he's just like, he's really, I find, supportive of Wesley. And he's also like showing Wesley that he can own his decisions. Mm -hmm. I really like this scene. He says responsibility and authority go hand in hand. You're already responsible, but what we need to do now is have some authority so you can make some right decisions, create a pattern of success, and help build self-confidence, but you have to trust your own judgment. Yeah, and Wesley worries about making a mistake. And Riker says that it's it's arrogant to think that that will never happen. And yes. so he says, the only thing you need to ask is, what would Picard do? <laughs> <laughs> and Wesley says, and this is one of the things I always really appreciated about Picard's leadership style. And I used to think about this a lot uh, when I had to train other leaders and such. Which is funny because when I trained other leaders, I would use examples from Star Trek, including Captain Riker <laughs> and Captain Picard. Uh, this is student leadership that when I was working at uh, the Simon Fraser University. Right. But one of the things he says is that, okay, so he's like, what would Picard do? And Wesley says that he would listen to everyone, but then he still makes his own decision. But he still listens to everybody. Yeah. So he takes on everyone's point of view, but then decides to make an informed decision. But it's his decision. That's what has to happen. So Riker points out that he's like, well, does anyone question Picard's final decision and Wesley's like no no way like everyone of course <laughs> follows the captain and so Riker says well then that's that's how you have to roll with it right like this is your final decision and he says but why is it that no one questions Picard and Wesley they leave that open at the end Wesley's like well, I don't really know because at that moment Riker gets called away yeah but he does he gets called away but he's like when you figure that out you will understand command. you'll understand command yeah yeah yeah, and I do I do like that he obviously he is being called away to something important. He's meeting in the captain's quarters. Like that's not that's not something you can brush off. But he he finishes with Wesley first because that's just as important. Yes. To him. Yes, of course. And then and then he goes up to his date and is like, Yeah, I gotta I gotta roll. And you can see her just like shaking her head like it seems like something that she might have expected or yeah. has come to understand about Riker. I mean, if you're First of all, it's another one of those situations where you're like, are you allowed to date people on the ship? I know. The Is the first, first officer, officer allowed to uh, like date? I That part, like, I'm not totally sure of. There might be some prime directive conversation there with Riker we need to have. So Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I also, but if you are going to date the first officer, expect that they will be called away fairly frequently. Yeah, they're going to be <laughs> they're gonna be busy. They're a busy person. I figured, yeah. like, I guess no one really cared about this, but I was like, you could always put people that he's dating in civvies rather than, than uniforms right, so on not, the ship. He's Dating not like, crew. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, that's okay. Yeah. So then we go to the lab and I did not find this scene to be the most realistic. <laughs> I no, don't know but I think they, they needed to end this storyline. It line. needed to be fast <laughs> because Wesley's like, I want that Icogram. And Davey's like, you got it. <laughs> you got it. He's like, all yeah, for sure. The yeah. one way that I find this realistic is that if you are right, that Davy was trying to be a mentor to Wesley. Maybe he was just waiting for Wesley to have that, like, take on that authoritative role. And he was like, okay, I know I can let go of the reins then. Like, this this kid's got it. Things are fine. And he's just going to, like, 
roll with it. He is a Starfleet officer, so he he takes orders, and Wesley is in command of the team, so he needs to follow Wesley's orders, and he, Gotta he does Wesley's that. Gotta follow Wesley's orders. So. Yeah. Now we're in Picard's quarters, and we have that conversation that, as you suggested, is probably off the record. And so yeah. we have Pulaski, LaForge. I don't think we've seen LaForge this whole episode so far. Troy, Riker, mm-hmm. and Worf have been brought up to speed on what's going on with Data. And Picard says that this is a meeting to discuss options, not to talk about how they got into it. So they're not going to question Data's decisions right now. They're just yeah. trying to figure out what do we do about the situation. He's like, this isn't a meeting about how wrong Data was. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> what did you do, Data? Yeah. Pulaski and LaForge are seem to be in for interference. Yes. Troy is sort of in favor as well. And and it's Worf of all people who's like, the prime directive is not a matter of degrees. It's yeah. Absolute. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. Pulaski straight up says to Worf that that seems callous and cowardly. I will and- kill you where you stand. <laughs> <laughs> Picard like immediately steps in and is like, ah, nope, no, that's not what Worf was saying. No, please don't fight in my quarters. In the quarters, yeah. I At this point though, th- this is another part of the, the episode where I was like, where did this come from? Um, they get into this conversation around like cosmic plans. Yeah, and fate. fate. And it, it just seems so odd here yes. from these characters that all of a sudden they would have this conversation, like seriously give weight as to whether or not they are taking on the role as like arbiters of cosmic fate. And it just seemed out of place for Star Trek. Yes. It felt like they immediately went to this sort of theoretical place. It's actually Data who brings it back out of that space. And he's like, the Draymonds are not a subject for philosophical debate mm-hmm. because they're not they're not talking about the people on this planet. They're talking about how can we say what's free will and what's part of the cosmic plan? And if there is a cosmic plan, are we not part of it? Because we're here. So maybe it, we were fated to interfere. And Data's like, OK, but we're actually talking about real people. And yes, we are talking about that real people because Data has made the choices that he's made. <laughs> but yes, that's that's where we're at now. And everyone's feeling, I think, more swayed than to do something. But this is when Picard's like, okay, and this is where Picard, I think, is really shows his strength as a leader in terms of like kind of cooling down conversations. He's like, okay, but what if it were an epidemic? Or what if it, it rather than a geological phenomenon, what if it was a war or a tyrant? Like, and so he says here that he he mainly wanted to shake up everyone's. I like how he puts this moral certitude. Yeah, he doesn't want people to feel as sure of their positions. He wants them to be able to see each other's sides a little bit. This is the point of the prime directive because we can't always be that sure that our interference is going to have a positive impact. This is something yeah. I I thought we often had to think more about when it came to international development. Because yeah. a lot of a lot of development projects while they they start from a place of good intention actually creates a lot of problems in the long run. Yeah. It, it's something that we used to they used to ask us to think about this especially as development had begun to evolve since the 1980s and how we used to do relief aid and work and how it's left part of the world actually sometimes worse off than it was before. And so and then so this is where Picard also says that one of the functions of the prime directive is then to prevent protect us yes. from getting overwhelmed with our own emotions and judgment and to be drawn into these kinds of situations. And so I appreciated that because I, as someone who often puts themselves in like a rescuer position, mm. I'm like, it would be helpful for me to have these sort of structures in place personally for my own decision making. Like I'm actually not allowed to take on that rescuing role. Yeah, because I want to, but it's going to cause me to be overwhelmed or not do the work as well as I'd want to or someone else could. So I do think about this sort of thing. I mean, I yeah. used to think about this even with in terms of Esther. 
and mm. the and the project we're doing overseas, which we we talked about in the last episode for the for the fundraiser. But one yeah. of the reasons why we wanted I wanted to work with Esther directly is that she was someone who was already doing the work. This right. in some ways that was my way of getting around the debate around the the prime directive because this is a person who's already on the ground who knows what's going on it's not the west coming in and swooping in and starting another project from scratch but it's working with someone who already has is entrenched in that society and in that community right and i think and this is where i think that the sort of metaphor of the prime directive can break down when we're talking about earth which is that yes. we on this planet we are all at this point for better or worse, we are all interconnected and we can't just say, oh, that's, oh, I'm not going to interfere when we're in a position of privilege because those of us who are in a position of privilege benefit from from that privilege. So we yes. can't we can't say, well, I'm not going to interfere because it's not my it's not my society. It's it's not my place because the only reason we're in this place is that other people are oppressed or exploited or otherwise in a in, you know in a position that that we we benefit from. Yeah, having just talked about this. Yeah. I just realized now cuz I know we're, we're going to be down in Vegas talking about Esther Zecco at the attractivism panel. Right. I just realized now like I had always talked about how more in a general sense the project was inspired by a desire to do good and that had often come from Star Trek. But the way that the project was set up and how it's established and working with local leadership, I just realized now like a lot of that actually was inspired by prime directive kind of thinking because I was thinking mm. about one of the ways that we could least do damage and support local leadership without trying to subvert it in any way and think about those power dynamics. And I never really vocalized that out loud. It, it always had been in the back of my mind, but that might be a way that I change the pitch to that or, or accentuate the, the pitch to the Star Trek community when we do this in a couple of weeks <laughs> or in actually a couple of days now that I think about it, we're heading down to Vegas in a few days, but it's around, it's around that idea. So I, I think in that sense, the prime directive actually, actually has shaped my own life pretty significantly Interesting. Uh, and the work in this nonprofit organization that we, that we used to support that school overseas in Sierra Leone. But anyways, I've, I've taken this down a tangent, but it's, no worries. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The one thing I do like about this conversation is that Pulaski is 100% on data side. That's and knowing growth. That, yeah, it's growth. <laughs> I know, given the tension that these characters have had, or at least Pulaski has had toward data, yeah. it's nice that he's like, she's like, this is data's friend and we should yeah. help them. And I was yeah. like, that's cool. Yeah, you tell you try and tell me this guy doesn't have emotions. Come on. Come yeah, on. And I appreciated that. I did. Yeah. yeah. So data realizes they are going to let, we're going to allow her to die. And Picard says, you have to sever contact with with the planet. And so Data goes to do that. And I kind of wonder if this is on purpose or what. But in doing it, he, <laughs> he plays. He puts it on audio. Yeah. Well, yeah, he plays the audio. And she's saying, where are you, Data? Why won't you answer? I'm so scared. And like, you can just see on everyone's face as soon as they hear that. They can't just allow her to die. <laughs> I know. I know. Picard has this great line. Yeah. Uh, Picard says, oh, Data, your whisper from the dark has now become a plea. We cannot turn our backs. Yeah. Luckily, in the observation lounge, we've got Wesley's team and they have figured out from the icogram the cause of the geological instability. Go, Wesley. 
Go west. So there are dilithium ore crystals. It's one of the most or the largest natural deposits of dilithium ore they've seen on any planet. But the crystals are growing in these lattices that are basically ripping the planet apart. And they're using the heat energy of the planet uh, to like increase it. Basically, the, the, the crystals are growing and ripping the place apart. So they got to yeah. figure out how to stop it. And I think they're like they're like resonating. So they're somehow turning the the heat into energy and creating tectonic stress. Yeah, it's it's yeah, bad. It's bad. So Picard is like, can we reverse the process? And Wesley says, we think so. And Picard's like, no, 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 no thinking. Do or do not. There is yeah, no do or do try. Not. <laughs> <laughs> the team is like, well, we'll look into it, which yeah, basically is like, and I don't know. It. We don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll work on it. Yeah. So the geological team leaves and Riker tells Picard that the situation is pretty desperate for Sarjenka and that Data has found the safest location for her to go. Riker's like, I think we know why. Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> this is going to turn into a rescue operation, basically, yes. is what's going to happen. Picard is like, okay, tell Data that he can tell her that safe location. And then he he kind of gestures. He's like, you know where we are. And he gestures towards his neck to, yeah. I guess, show they are neck deep in this. They are neck deep. Yeah. <laughs> Back in Data's quarters, Data tries to contact uh, Sarjenka, but now they've lost contact. So there's yes. no... I, I guess be, because of disturbances in the atmosphere and caused by all the, the volcanic activity that we can't transmit to the surface anymore. Yeah, so, so he can't tell her the safe location. We can't. And so Worf and Hildebrandt explain that they'll modify the probes to become resonators uh, and put them in torpedo cases and then send them underground where they can emit harmonic vibrations that shatter the lattices. So this is their way of, of saving the planet. Riker was with them. They're in the ready room. So Riker is going to leave with them. But then Data comes in and he's like, oh, I better stick around for this. Picard orders an Earl Grey tea, uh, which he this time gets to drink. So this is the first time in the entire series that we see him drink his tea Earl Grey hot. Because you may recall in... Uh, the episode Contagion it was the first time he ordered it, but it was a plant, it not was a plant. tea. So this is the first yes. time we see him drink his iconic drink. <laughs> Data says, I want to beam down. <laughs> I can't contact Sarjanka from here. So no, now like, I what? really want to beam. I really want to break the prime directive and beam down to the planet. Yeah. And Data's like, well, what's it? He tries to turn it into this like... <laughs> this argument where he's like, well, what's the difference? I mean, we've already done, we've already come this far. Like, Riker's like, there is a difference. I mean, come on, Data. You can't say there's no difference between like an audio call and being there in person. But what I really like about Data in this episode and also in A Measure of a Man is he asks these questions to make the rest of the crew spell it out. Like in Measure of a Man, he specifically said to Picard, What's the difference between making me property of Starfleet and making all humans have their eyes removed so that they can use visors like Geordi's? Like he makes people spell it out and that makes them question their certainty of the prime director. Yeah. Like he says, we've come this far. Tell me what the difference is. And Picard says, okay, fine, you can go. But he's like, but Riker... You handle the transporter. You handle the transporter, yeah, because we don't want to put O'Brien in that situation. Yeah. Basically, what's happening. So when they walk into the transporter room, Riker tells O'Brien, he's like, yeah, take a nap. You didn't see any of this. I love it. And O'Brien's like, it. he doesn't like flinch. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll just go. I would go to sleep over here, I guess. And he just like basically leads against the wall. And yeah. then Data beams down to the planet. But then Riker calls or Picard calls Riker back to the bridge. So now there's no one operating the transporter. So Brian's like, oh, I, I just woke up. Don't worry. I'll have him out of there smooth <laughs> so, as ice. I wish they had given a reason 
some sort of emergency had happened that Riker was needed on the bridge because it feels a little bit unfair for Picard to say, you operate the transporter, but I'm not going to let you stay there. Yeah, I, I just imagine that maybe like something else was going on. Yeah, <laughs> before, I wish they kind of shown so, that. So yeah, so Data uh, transports into the, a house, basically. It's this kind of house that's made of... It's neat looking. It's got it's like really cool. these kind of hexagon shaped like walls with like white stone. It's almost like yeah, a it's yurt. Almost, yeah, it's like a space yurt basically. Yeah. And yeah. so Data walks up to the door or like one of the walls. And basically when he puts his hand on the wall, it like it disappears. Yeah. I thought maybe they were trying to make a point here is that it's not like it's a technologically unadvanced society. Mm. Like perhaps a society that at least has like considered or thought about the fact that there's probably like life out of the universe maybe right. they're on the verge of interstellar travel like that's certainly more advanced than anything on earth we have right now and we're traveling right. through space but they it reveals when he pulls back the wall there's like a red sky there's volcanoes erupting the ground is like shaking i thought it was funny that the ground only shakes when the door is open yeah, I thought that was funny too. Like, this is a very protective door. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's like there's a little bit of like pathetic fallacy there where like only if the door opens is there going to be shaking. Yeah, but, only if you know it, yeah. <laughs> but then he closes the door, but then a young girl enters. Is obviously in such a rush that she doesn't even know Data's there. Yeah. Goes to grab something, but then she turns around and Data's there and is like, hey, like Sarjanka. And then she goes to run away and he's like, no, 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 it's me, Data. And so she stops and is very relieved that he's there. I really like Sarjanka. I think she's so sweet. She's so relieved that he's there. She's like, where have you been? I was so worried. And he's like, it, I cannot explain. Interestingly, her family already left this location. Maybe they also figured out. This I also thought was interesting, like this idea that Data had to tell them the safest location to go. It kind of sounds to me like they already, they were able to do that on their own. She only came right. back. And this, I think, must be terrifying for her family. She came back, didn't tell them where she was going because she wanted to get her transmitter because she didn't want Data to reach out and find silence. Yeah, we're already starting to see now an effect of the break in that prime directive. Yes. She basically endangered herself in yes. order to be in contact with Data. So that is a thing. Yeah. Data is like, okay, well, we're going to, you can't survive here, so we got to go. He contacts O'Brien and is like, yeah, two to beam up. <laughs> and O'Brien... <laughs> Does it, of course. They materialize and O'Brien's like, okay, there's going to be hell to pay. <laughs> he brings her out and he's like, he, well, for, first of all, Data's like, where's Commander Riker? And O'Brien's like, well, he's on the bridge. And so he brings Sarjanka out into the hallway and O'Brien's like, are you going to bring her with you? And yeah. and she's, he, like, she's don't like, don't leave me. Don't, don't leave me here. Me. Yeah. It's probably overwhelming to be on a starship. Like yes. completely what's going on. And so <laughs> Data's like, well, I can't leave her. He's like, it's quite impossible. To, to Brian just takes her down the corridor. I just love the way Data does all of these things. He's not like, oh, you know, I wish I could leave her, but I can't. He's like, no, of course I'm going to take her to the bridge. Yep. Like it's normal to take a child from a planet that has no contact with Starfleet to the bridge of Starfleet's flagship for crying out loud like <laughs> so between this example and you know having been in contact with her for weeks beforehand and then as you said which I had not considered is that maybe he had intentionally turned on the audio before disconnecting <laughs> I think maybe Data's a little bit manipulative in this episode I don't know well I think it's like is he manipulative or is he just so matter of fact that it's impossible to argue with him? Because so much of there to follow the prime directive, everyone has to buy in and he's just kind of innocently not buying in. Yeah, I, I think that's right. <laughs> and and again, he's trying to 
<laughs> he's trying to challenge them on their own thoughts and beliefs and and everything else. And he's uh, although yeah. Data, when I think about it now, Data is responsible for a number of pretty big Prime Directive violations, <laughs> but. <laughs> We'll get into those later. We will. So, of course, Data shows up on the bridge. Picard does his best to hold it together, but he's like, he's brought a child to the ship and my bridge. And it was <laughs> a, one of those, another one of those moments where I was like, this didn't really need to be in the script. Like, it just, Picard has been helpful this whole time. And the one thing that he flips out over is to have, like, a child on the bridge. And it's it's just one of those silly things that we're like, haven't we dropped this from his personality profile already? Because it, it just doesn't really fit the scene or the moment or the tone. It's it's in who Picard maybe was originally written to be, but yeah. it's not who he really is, I don't think. For a while, and it hasn't been through this episode. So it's just like yeah. a weird moment that I that didn't really need to be there. But, yeah. but Riker's like, I'm sure Mr. Data has a very good explanation. Yeah. And Data's like, I do. She was frightened. Yeah. You know? Picard's like, just get to work. I do understand some of Picard's frustration here where he's like, Data, I am trying to meet you where you are at, but you are making zero effort to meet me where I am at. Yeah, if anything, (laughs) like I'm walking toward you and you keep walking away. We're trying more and more and more farther into the situation. Uh, Troy tries to go up to Sarjanka and like take her to sickbay. But Sarjanka is like, totally freaked out and just does not want to be near or touched anyone else. I actually didn't think this was Troy. Like, I didn't think this was a great moment for Troy where she kind of keeps going after her and she's like, oh, we'll go get a treat. We're just, it'll be fine. And she's like, just leave me alone. And like. No, I I thought, I feel like this is a writing moment for the character because like, I don't feel like Troy would, even she has her like continuing to walk forward into Sarjanka's space. And I don't think she would have done any of that because she's an empath. She can feel how Sarjanka, it's like terror and everything. If anything, I thought that that scene would have been much better written if like Troy was like, I think Sarjanka should stay here with Data. Like that makes a lot more sense sense yes so eventually picard is like okay fine keep her with you data just do just do your work like this is way more trouble than it than it's worth yeah we need you at your station take your station Worf fires these torpedoes which are not actual they're not behaving they're not photon torpedoes they're just in torpedo casings but he fires them at the planet and data kind of reports on the status and he explains to sarjenka they are trying to quiet her planet. They're trying to get rid of the volcanoes and the quakes. Mm-hmm. And she's really excited. She's like, so my family and my brothers are going to be okay. And Data says, well, yeah, sensors indicate a planet-wide reduction in tectonic stress. It worked. And yes, Sarjanka, your family is going to be safe now. This is a funny thing with Star Trek, is that <laughs> when they need to do anything on a planetary-wide scale... They are like even bigger. They just shoot it with something. Yes. They have to shoot it with photon torpedoes or phasers. They're were, they always were shooting planets to make them better. I just thought that was funny. Yeah. Anyways, Data <laughs> says that the uh, that the things are getting better. He shows her her own planet on the view screen, which I thought was cool. That actually, that made me think of you. Oh, did it? Yeah, because I know how much you love seeing Earth from far away. Ah, uh, yeah, that's I thought, nice. I yeah, thought you would, if you could be on the Enterprise, you'd be like, can you show me Earth? Totally, yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's a beautiful place we live. We got to yeah. take care of it because it takes care of us. What if just some alien ship comes by and sucks all the extra carbon out of our atmosphere because some small child was like, "Is anyone out there?" 
Is anyone out there? Please help our planet. <laughs> Please help our planet. We are destroying it, but can you help us? Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't mind. Uh, I think afterward, we would still need to be like, okay, let's not get back to this place again. Yeah. I think we're making steps to get there. I'm just worried that they're too slow. We're working on it, yeah. We're working on it. So Picard tells Data to escort Sarjanka to sickbay and then goes to the ready room and asks Pulaski what would be involved in removing Sarjanka's memory of communicating with Data and visiting the ship. How, how do you feel about that, Matthew? I don't know. Yeah. But I understand why this might be... I think this was Picard's move the whole way through. This was his plan? This was his plan. Because like he doesn't... I think he's already thought of this. Obviously, it happens like immediately after they've fixed the planet. Yeah. And I think in his own mind, because where they're already going is a compromise for him, he is like, okay, what's my way out of this situation? Thankfully for him... We haven't had contact with any other member of their society, any of the other people. It's just this one person. So he's like, okay, maybe we can get out of this by saying that we fixed their society, we saved the whole planet, and we just need to erase a few memories from one person. Like, I certainly wouldn't want my memories or experiences of a person or a situation to be removed. But in this case, it might be very burdensome. Maybe in the yeah. long run for her to know that data's out there, that there's this whole other society. If she tries to talk about that experience with other people, yeah. like, what, what, what is that going to do for her, for her society? Would she be ostracized? Are they going to think that she's mentally unwell? Like, yeah. So it, it might be really hard for her to have a normal life afterwards if they don't do this. So I do understand why it happens. Again, it's one of those things. I understand it. Not sure I agree with it. Yeah. I mean, what's the prime directive now of invading someone's mind? Exactly. Right. So I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's an okay place to be, I think, yep. with these situations. Yeah. That's the point is that it raises these ethical dilemmas. Yeah. But I, I do understand why they did it, and I think, I think Data asks this as well because back in Sick Bay, Pulaska, Pulaski greets Sergeyanka very warmly. She's way better with her than Troy was. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Which again, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I but um, I'm glad we, I'm glad she is obviously. Yeah. But. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and she picks this interesting stone up off Pulaski's desk. What What is this stone? Yeah, it hums. And Pulaski says, it's an Elenian singer stone. And it sings a different song for each person. That's so cool. Yeah, I want one. I, yeah, me too. I want to know what my, my singer stone song is. Yeah. It doesn't sing for Data because he's a machine. And Sarjanka just accepts that with no further questions. <laughs> yeah, which is unfortunate. When they had that moment there, I was like, oh, here's here's like a time where you could have like a thing for data. But then they're like, no, they, yeah. like, she doesn't ask that. She's not like, like, well, I'll sing a song for you. Like nothing like that. You know, like that would have been a cool moment, but they don't do it. Pulaski says they're going to do some scans and she puts her under anesthetic. And then they have this discussion about whether like whether whether what they're doing is good. And I mean, I really like what I love about the scene is that Pulaski says to data, you did a good thing. You will remember her. And that is, yeah. that's a good thing. And like we were talking about before, it really shows how Pulaski's view of data has changed. That she knows that he's not just a machine, even though he is a machine, but she knows that in addition to being a machine, he is a person. His thoughts and experiences matter. I would also say his feelings matter. Yeah. And so data beams back to Sarjanka's room. Holding her, she's still unconscious. Yeah. Puts her in bed. This story still works for their family because they know that she ran back here yeah. and maybe just fell asleep. Yeah, maybe she knocked her head or something. Yeah. Knocked her head and then but has the stone in her hand. 
And I wonder if anyone knows that he did that. (laughs) In my mind, Pulaski knows and she chose not to say anything. Cool. That's cool. (laughs) Like Data's like, okay, Picard made his compromise. Here's my compromise. Here's my little compromise from his compromise. But we're going to give her a souvenir. (laughs) Yeah. And she'll think about it for the rest of her life. Yeah. Where did I get this from? And so Data looks outside again, like removes the wall and the volcanoes are are no longer erupting. This is a very human moment for Data. Yeah. It's, and it's great in the acting, but he goes to like leave, but then doesn't for a second. Like he hesitates. No. He, he lowers his hand from his communicator and then just kind of looks around one more time mm-hmm. and then signals to go. And I'm like, that's emotion. Yes. Is that not? Like, I feel, I feel like that's emotion. I, Those are moments I where they're trying like to display is. that. Yeah. I feel like Data has maybe a different experience of emotions and maybe doesn't understand the language of them but i Mm, mm -hmm. i absolutely think he he feels in this moment and in many other moments in the show i agree i think i think that's the point they're trying to get across to the audience as well back on the bridge wesley enters and Riker offers him the captain's chair he's like have a seat (laughs) yeah wesley's like no 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 i'm not ready for that we know the, the way this is kind of a full circle moment for wesley because in the very first episode he did sit in the captain's chair yeah, right so that's true. but this time because wesley has himself grown he's like you know what it's actually a long time before i'm going to be qualified to sit there and so he chooses not to sit in the chair this time he does and so here's where i feel there are some parallels between the a plot and the b plot because he asks Riker, like if it if it ever gets any easier if command gets easier And Riker says, nope. And where I see that is like, okay, like Picard probably wouldn't have any difficulty commanding a team doing a geological survey. Yeah, that particular action would be easier for Picard. But the more experienced in command you become, the more difficult questions you have to deal with. Like Picard had, I think just as hard a time as Wesley because he had Data really pushing against him and he really had to make, just like Wesley had to think about, am I right in ordering this icospectrogram? Picard had to think, am I right in saying, no, we're not going to save this planet? Yeah, absolutely. And that's hard. It is hard. It doesn't get easier. But he's proud of him, right? Riker says, I'm proud of you. Yeah. And uh, that is cool. In the ready room, Picard is sitting and reading, as he does, you know. Data enters to apologize. He comes in and Picard's sitting on his couch with his book. But he says that no apologies are needed. And he says that Data reminded them that there are obligations that go beyond duty. Well, how do you feel about that? I I think in, I sort of agree, it's a lot easier to follow the prime directive when you can pretend that the people on these other planets are not real people. And Data did not allow them to pretend that thing. Yeah. I don't know that what they did was ultimately the right thing. I do think it is what I probably would have done. I think like the Prime Directive is clearly, it's clearly very important, but it can't just be used as as a protection or as as something to distance Starfleet from these other civilizations. Mm-hmm. It has to be questioned. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, what do you think? I would like to think, well, my, one of the reasons why I liked the, the notion of the Federation of being in Starfleet is that 
that the obligations and the duty are harmonized, you know, that we're trying to go out and do good in the world, but we might have to ask what, and because they, they command so much power in their vessels and their ships and their technology, that they, they do need to temper what they do and don't do sometimes. So I would say at the very least that, that these conversations have to happen. So for them to determine what, whether or not their obligations are beyond the duties that they've been assigned or as they're prescribed, because it's never going to fit every situation perfectly. But I think that's also part of why the prime directive exists is that there's so much nuance and complexity that it, it at least sparks these conversations. Yeah. But data appreciates what Picard did. And Picard finally says, well, one of my officers, and he says, one of my friends was in trouble and I had to help. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. It is. <laughs> and I mean, he, Data's friend was in trouble and Picard's friend was in trouble. And they were both like, just like Data had to help Sarjanka, Picard had to help Data. That's right. Yeah. Data says that Sarjanka is safely home and that while she won't remember him, he will remember her. Yes, and Picard says that remembrances and regrets are part of friendship, which is true. And he says that understanding that brings you a step closer to understanding humanity. And Data smiles. Yeah, and that's the episode. And that is the episode. Dun, dun, dun. Any any final thoughts that we haven't that we haven't touched on yet? I I really do enjoy these the first these these prime directive episodes. I think they really get at the heart of of what star trek is but in that in that sense that of like because it you get to look at so many different levels of the of the show that way of from the technology but also the individuals the nature of what it means to travel through space um, what the federation is and what it stands for it's like these 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 things to really like i think talk about like and, and kind of get back to what the root of the show is and, and what it is that we hope the show itself accomplishes and what it does and so i always find these episodes really cool they're not always the best mm. i think by this season like this episode's already pretty good and and we have some more prime directive episodes coming up that i think are also quite good yeah one of the things that i find interesting about this episode and and similar ones in the early treks, so in TOS and certainly TNG, I can say because it's the one I'm the most familiar with, in some ways they kind of play it safe because they, you know, they're all, the episodes are written in such a way that they're, we're not going to have lasting impacts. It's very episodic and the writers sort of make choices that sometimes make the decisions easier for the crew than is maybe the most realistic kind of like when Wesley tells um, Davies I want that Ico spectrogram and he's like you got it like that's you got it. that's not realistic um, I think there would have been more pushback but that's just kind of how the writers take it they they sometimes do take some easier steps and we don't have to worry about the lasting impacts of this of, of these actions in this episode because we're not gonna ever see this planet again but I do think that that can then allow the viewer to really think about the implications of of the decisions we make as they are sort of connected to to this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, you're, you're stuck in this like this older format of writing for TV at this point. Yeah. Like I almost wonder what what TNG would be like if it was in a streaming service. 
now. Right. Yeah. Like, it would be totally how, how much different. more you could do with it and everything else. Yeah. Like I wonder if in this way it's like it's the it's the show and what it's trying to do, like almost like trying to outgrow the format of storytelling that it's been shoehorned into for TV. Right. Yeah. But we didn't know that at the time because we didn't know what other format it could be because <laughs> no. we hadn't experienced all these no. other ways of doing storytelling on television yeah. yet. It gives us as viewers the chance to think about this in a way that maybe if if we did have to deal with the consequences, we wouldn't be able to think about it because it's like you said earlier, we were talking about this and we, we kind of arrived at a place of not knowing. You said that's okay to, to say, I don't know. And it's okay to say, we don't actually know if this was the right decision. We're not going to see what the consequences are. So there is the possibility that it wasn't the right decision. There is the possibility that it was the right decision. And we can kind of hold both of those things in our minds yeah. as we move on. In Not in the show, but in our own lives outside of the show. We can think yeah. about the implications without having them spelled out for us. Yeah, I think that makes sense. All right, I think, I think we've... I think we've covered it all in the last That's a good one. hour and a half. Holy yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at nathannunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FirstLinkPod. Or send us an email at firstlinkpod at gmail.com to let us know what you think of the Prime Directive. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Matthew. And if you wake up one day with a singing stone beside you and all the world's problems have suddenly just vanished, maybe don't tell anyone about that stone. <laughs>